So we're in Romans chapter 8 tonight. We're going to finish uh, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Um, chapter 8 is still in the last section where he's still talking about the 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 theo- theological parts of the book. And he's still kind of explaining justification. 9, 10, and 11 is... How do I want to put this? It's kind of... It's the section on... Um, it's the section where Paul talks straight to the Jews and just one-on-one kind of encourages them because, I mean, let's face it, the book up until this point has kind of been pretty harsh on the Jews. I mean, even, even to the point where, and it's pretty obvious, he foresees this happening. And so he talks about in chapters 9, 10, 11, that just because, just because you were lost because of your actions doesn't mean you're still lost. So, so chapter eight, now in order to get to chapter eight, we need to refresh ourselves on chapter seven, especially this section where he he talks of what we talked about at the end of last time, um, where he kind of embodies the the heart of a Jewish person. So, chapter seven, verse fifteen: For I do not understand my own actions; for I do not want, I do not want, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but, the abil- but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So he, he talks about this. The Jews had this problem of they wanted to follow God. They wanted justification, salvation, but they couldn't get it. Why? Why could the Jews not get salvation under the Mosaical law? It just wasn't, it wasn't an option at that point, right? It's not that the law was wrong or the law was messed up or the law had problems. It was simply the fact that the law was doing exactly what it was supposed to do, which was explain what sin is, right? Yes, it took 1,500 years until God put that law out of the way, nailing it to the cross. He didn't kill the law, remember? Chapter 7. We died, but, but he did take it out of power. Why did it take 1,500 years? Why did God wait that long? We don't know. Uh, Galatians says Jesus came in the perfect the perfect time and so we can just understand that God's infinite knowledge showed that we needed the 1500 years right. um, but chapter 7 he, he talks about this this Jewish mentality so verse 21 of chapter 7 so I find it to be the law that when I want to do right evil lies at the uh, evil lies at the door or evil lies close at hand Meaning, every time I want salvation, I go to worship, and I'm reminded of my sins through the, through the sacrifices. I go to the synagogue, and I hear the word of God, and I'm reminded of my sins. I go to the temple, and I want to uh, take part in the temple work, and I'm reminded of my sins over and over and over again. And so, verse 21, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, when I want righteousness... When I want salvation, evil's right there. I'm just continually reminded of it. For I delight in the law of God 
in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, verse 25, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That doesn't mean that we are bound to serve the law of sin, right? That means we decide to do that. That's what the first two chapters of Romans were about. That we, as mankind, Gentile and Jew, decided to go into sin. We decided to leave the law of God. Gentiles were supposed to be following it, just as Jews. So now we come to chapter 8. Chapter 8, so chapters 1 through 7 are kind of the... the it's very downtrodden, right? Especially chapter 7. Chapter 8 is the encouragement. Chapter 9, 10, and 11 are the encouragement just for the Jews. So, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now, under the New Testament, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. The words in Christ are used 169 times in Paul's writings. Especially talking about the times when we are in the New Testament, right? So we are baptized into Christ, Galatians 3.27. But in Christ means the, the time, the place, the law. Remember, a law just outlines a process. So in the Old Testament, the process they needed was to push back their sins till Jesus came, right? And so they gave a law. God gave a law. What did that sin do? Or what did that law do? Pushed back the sin until Jesus came. So a law simply means something that outlines a process for some good or something. Um, we have the law of, it's called the law of parsimony or the law of divine um, economy. It's, it's a big word that just means it's that idea that God doesn't do more than he has to do. Right? It's a law. Because when we observe it, it's never been broken, like a scientific law. But also, it defines a, a process. God's process is to never do more than he has to do. So, we're in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. There we go again. We have a law, the law of Spirit of life. People say, well, now we're just by grace. We don't have law. The problem with that is, what is grace? Somebody tell me what grace is. Define it for me. God's unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor, right? So, here's a problem. Paul has said at least twice in this book, if there is no law, there is no sin, right? Because what is sin? A transgression of the law. Right? So if there's no law, there can't be transgression of something that doesn't exist. Right? So, if, if we're free, verse 2, if we, if we are in grace, grace is unmerited favor because we're in sin and God gives us favor. But if you, can't have, if you don't have any law, you don't have any sin, which means you don't have any grace. So someone that says, oh, well, we're under grace now. We're not under law. That can't, that, that's impossible, right? You have to have a law to have sin. 
You have to have sin in order to have grace. That's why Paul says in chapter 6, well, what should we do? Should we just keep sinning so that grace can abound? Break, keep breaking the law so God's grace can be stronger? Well, no, that's not possible, right? <clears throat> because we've died. We've been freed, verse 2 of chapter 8. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. <clears throat> How was the law weakened by the flesh? The law was perfect, right? Yes. The law did exactly what it needed to do. It was strong enough. It was, it was perfect. And yet Paul says it was weakened by the flesh. Somebody get Galatians 4 verse 9 for me. Galatians 4 verse 9. Actually, read verses 9 and 10 and 11. 9, 10, and 11. Galatians 4, 9, 10, and 11. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. All right, so... He says, why do you want to go back to the, to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? He's talking about the Old Testament, right? Why do you want to go back to the weak? Well, the, the law wasn't weak in not able to do what it was supposed to do. The law was weak because it didn't do everything we needed, right? So, if you have a tool that is made subpar... You bought it at Walmart, and it's a cheapo tool, right? And say a hammer. Is that hammer going to nail nails into the wall so that you can hang a picture? Yeah. Is that hammer going to be able to pull those giant three-foot spikes that we put down in that thing out there? No, not even close, right? It's, exact, it, it's, it's perfect for what it needs to do. It's not strong enough to do what you want it to do, right? And you will break it. Same process. The Old Testament law was not weak for what it needed to do. It was weak for what man wanted it to do. Man wanted it to save us from our sins, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't built to do that. And so he says, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. He came in the, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Was Jesus God? Yes. Was Jesus man? Okay. Well, I had this conversation with another preacher this past week. You've heard the statement, he was 100% God and 100% man, right? I, I, I understand that problem. The problem is, as humans, that statement, but as humans, we're used to 100% meaning completely, right? Okay. So you can't fit 200% in anything. And that kind of confuses us, right? I mean, am I the only person that gets confused by this 100%, 100% thing? He was, he was perfectly human. He had all the... All the nature of a human being and all the nature of God. And he came in the likeness. He was like all of us. Sinful flesh. Not sinful by design, but sinful in that we, we have made the world sin, right? Um, and so someone says, well, did Jesus have the ability to sin when he's tempted by the devil? Could Jesus have sinned? And someone says, no. Jesus couldn't have sinned because he's God, right? 
That's true. He is God. However, he's also man. He could have sinned, right? That's what temptation means. In fact, look at the next word. I'll get you one second. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. The word for means touching or close to. Okay? So he came. He came close to sin. He came and touched it. Verse uh, 8, chapter 8, verse 3. He came for sin. Yeah, Romans. Romans 8, verse 3. He came for sin. And he came close to it. He touched it. But he didn't just touch it and walk away. What did he do? He touched it and condemned it. Condemned means it's, it's, it's a word that would kind of carry the idea of um, destroying. Uh, it's, the, it's the word that they would use for a person who is condemned to a uh, capital punishment. Right. Condemned to death. Right. So he's he came, he touched sin and he condemned it to death. He came in likeness of sinful flesh because he didn't sin. He was like us. He was one of us. But he's also different than us. Because remember, he could see the whole picture. Why do we sin? I mean, you and I, right? Say, for instance, this morning we talked about giving. And, 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 and some people will say, well, the reason why people don't give as much as they should is because they, they, love, their, they love their stuff more and they, they don't care about the church. Maybe. That's for some people. But a lot of people just lose sight of it, right? We're not doing it out of hatred. We're doing it because we just don't pay attention, right? Jesus didn't have that ability, right? When, when, when he was tempted with sin, he had the ability as God to see everything. We don't have that ability. And so we're in the moment, we sin because we don't have the ability to look long term. Jesus had the ability to look long term. So he was like us. He wasn't 100% like us. He wasn't exactly like us. But he, he was human. He just had that nature of God to where he could see past everything. He could see the whole timeline. He could see what is this going to do to me in the long run. And so he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he touched sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Why did Jesus have to die? Because chapter 5, um, Romans, well, Romans chapter, uh, Romans chapter 5, when he talks about Adam and, and Jesus, Adam's sin was infinite, right? Not because it's passed down to man, the men after them, but because it opened the door for sin, right? And for an infinite sin, you need an infinite sacrifice. Well, a bull and goat, Hebrews said, is not, it's not infinite enough. Because bulls and goats don't have souls. We need, for an infinite sin, we need an infinite sacrifice. What is more infinite than a soul, right? Lasts for eternity. Nothing else does, but souls do. And so Jesus had to die. And that's why Jesus had to die. We needed an infinite Sacrifice. So he condemned it in the flesh. He came, died in the flesh, condemned it in the flesh in order that the righteousness, righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. There again, we needed an infinite sacrifice. The, the Old Testament couldn't save us from our sins 
because it didn't have the ability to give us an infinite sacrifice. Jesus was the only one that could do that. Who walked not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There we go. Uh, Spirit and flesh in chapter 8, really all of Romans, for the most part, is talking about Old Testament, New Testament. Um, And so that clears up a lot in chapter 7 when he says, my flesh is warring against me. The old law is warring against me because it doesn't do what I need it to do, right? So, um, look down at verse um, number 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh, or the Old Testament, is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Why, why is a person trying to follow the Old Testament hostile toward God's law? It is God's law, isn't it? Not anymore. Right? We have a new one. So you're hostile to the, to the New Testament... Because you're trying to follow the Old Testament. And you can't do it. Why? You can't follow the Old Testament and the New Testament at the same time. Why? Because the Old Testament says you need sacrifice. The New Testament says you already have your sacrifice. Right? And there can't be two laws and power at the same time, what we talked about earlier. But more specifically, you can't follow the Old Testament and the New Testament because the Old Testament is calling for something that the New Testament says you already have. It's like trying to read a um, like trying to read a, a cake recipe that says you need two eggs. Well, I already have the two eggs in the bowl. Well, you need to put two eggs in the bowl, but I already have two eggs in the bowl. We need to put two eggs in the bowl. I already have. You see, it's the problem. You already have what it's calling for, and now what do you do? Do you put more in there? No, because then you're you're. Trying to add to what you already have, right? It's, going, it's not going to work. Um, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot. A person who's following the Old Testament, even by the point when Paul writes, cannot please God. So here's a question. Jesus comes. He calls his disciples, lives with them for three years. The Passion Week comes, he's arrested, crucified, dies, is buried, raised from the dead. Fifty days goes about, about fifty days. And really nothing has changed other than now they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what's coming. Pentecost comes. The church is established. And Acts says that the Lord added to their number about 3,000 souls. We never have record of the apostles being baptized. Why? Some people say, well, we know they did. We can't know anything that Scripture doesn't tell us, right? There was some point in there. At some point, maybe they were baptized, but we don't know. We can't say. I love it when people say, well, we know the apostles were baptized. How? Well, they had to have been. Well, they had to have been, maybe. But we don't know it for certain. They could very well have been baptized. But there seems to be some time period where the disciples of Christ crossed over into the church. And maybe they were baptized by John. Maybe they, maybe they had a baptismal right there among all of them one night when they're by the Jordan and they're out talking and Jesus is teaching them and teaches about baptism and they're all baptized. We don't know this for certain. 
But by the time Paul writes it, if you try to follow the Old Testament, you are lost. So he says, anyone who are in the flesh following the Old Testament cannot please God. What does the book of Hebrews say is the way that we please God? Can anybody remember? Yeah. Faith, without faith it's impossible to please him for the one must believe that he is and that he's a ruler of him who diligently seeks him. Hebrews 11.6 is the citation. So, faith. But they were, they were following the Old Testament by faith. But faith is not just an acknowledgement, right? Faith is an action. Faith is an active belief in something, right? They were following the Old Testament by faith. But now faith is not based in the Old Testament. Faith is based in the New Testament. You, however, verse number 9 of chapter 8, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Alright, so, in this passage, for two verses, we have the Spirit is in you, and Christ is in you. We have this conversation. Does the Spirit dwell within us, actual, physically, literally, that the Holy Spirit is within me at all times. If that's the case, then Christ has to be within us at all times. But Christ isn't like he used to be before he came, is he? When Thomas touched Christ, what did he feel? Thomas says, I'm not going to believe until I see it. When Jesus shows up and does what? He says, put your hand in my side. Put your finger in the holes in my hands and my wrists. Right? Jesus isn't like he was before he came to earth. Now he has the physical body somehow. We're going to be like him. What is that going to look like? No clue. Corinthians just says that we're going to be like him. And so I believe it. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what it's going to feel like. I'm not really worried about it, to be honest with you. But here's the problem. The Holy Spirit is in us, verse number 9. Christ is in us, verse number 10. Christ is not a spirit anymore. He is physical. So Christ cannot literally be inside us, right? So why do we think that verse 9 is talking literal and verse 10 is not talking literal? How does the Holy Spirit dwell in us now? Yeah, I mean, you could very... You could honestly say that I live within you because I'm teaching you the book of Romans, right? I don't literally live within you. Um, But the teachings do, right? So, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, if the, if by the Spirit you put the, to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For we all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. How are we sons of God? We've been freed. We're no longer sons of the Old Testament. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. All right, now this statement, Abba, Father, is very confusing to people today. They will say, one, you either have to call him Abba, Father, or uh, a very popular thing a few years ago, and it's kind of going out of style now, but they would say, Abba is the Aramaic word for daddy. And so when you pray to God, you can pray, Daddy, we love you. Daddy, we do this. Daddy, we want you to take care of us. Okay, if you want to call him daddy, I think you're being slightly immature in your faith. However, that's your deal, whatever you want to do. Abba, Father, is an Aramaic word and a Greek word. And they put them together because at this point, Jesus spoke Aramaic and Jesus spoke Greek. He spoke probably, most likely, more Aramaic than he did Greek. Um, Hebrews, the majority of Hebrews in Jesus' time spoke Aramaic. They read Hebrew because the scrolls are still in Hebrew. They still wrote Hebrew. But the, their language was Aramaic. And they would speak Greek because they needed to speak Greek because who was in charge? The Romans, right? But for the most part, they spoke Aramaic. It's just like a, a, a Hispanic family today. May, well, they're not... They may be able to read and write old Spanish, right? But they're going to speak modern Spanish. Well, when they go to Walmart, they're going to speak English, right? Why? Because they need to speak English. We can get into the, the socio ideas about whether or not they need to speak English. Or, I don't really care. Um, I, think, I think we need to learn Spanish anyways. But I wish I knew how to speak Spanish. But it's the same idea. At this point, they, they spoke Greek and Aramaic the majority of their lives. And so by the time Jesus came around, there was a saying, Abba, Father. They would call their fathers Abba, Father. And it just meant, it was just kind of a loving term that, that meant Father, Father, two different languages. But it was kind of a, it was kind of a showing of, um, Well, not really respect. It was more of like when you're scared, you would, or, or if you're talking about your protection, you'd call him Abba Father. So, um, if your dad, you know, if your father was a protective type of father, you would call him Abba Father, right? And so, read verse 15 again. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now we have that relationship where he's taking care of us. And so Paul uses the phrase that Jesus used in John 20, 28, Mark 14, 36. Both times he's praying to God. Uh, John 20 specifically, he said, it's when he says, let this cup pass from me. What does Jesus want when he says, let this cup pass from me? His father to protect him, Right. It's not some flippant daddy. It's, it's wanting protection. And what Paul is saying here is, Jews and Gentiles alike have been adopted by God and now we have the protection of God. Protection from what? What did we talk about last week? At some point, 
a Christian, given enough time, given enough study of the scriptures, enough maturity, comes to the point where he no longer is tempted by sin. Why? Because he has the protection, right? God is protecting him. You're not scared. I think a lot of times Christians are terrified because of this idea that, you know, you you can be lost at any moment. You could die at any moment. If you haven't prayed for that, you know, y'all driving over here, uh, somebody cut you off and you thought a bad thing, and if you hadn't prayed for that yet and you get in a wreck, you're lost forever, right? That's fearful, right? That's terrifying. That is, um, in fact, I I, um, I listened to a, a story the other day about a young boy uh, I don't remember what state it happened, and I don't remember a lot of the specifics, but I'm going to try to um, kind of paraphrase it as much as possible. A young boy's family had, this is a true story, had hired a, a basketball coach to teach him basketball because he was showing some promise. So this coach teaches him for years and years. And eventually, um, one of the other parents whose child was being coached by this individual finds some text messages between the coach and the son. And you, you know where your mind's automatically going, right? It's not that. It's, it's different than that. And that's where my mind went to. Um, they find these text messages, and they go through them. And it comes out that this coach has been teaching these strange things about microchips and that they're the mark of the beast. It's premillennialism. But it's this hyper, like, weird kind of conspiracy theory slash premillennialism slash all these other things. And he'd been teaching these boys this stuff for years. And so they start realizing, all the parents come together and they start realizing, wait, we were taking my son to the doctor the other day and he didn't want to go and he was terrified. And he kept saying, they're going to kill me. Why was he thinking that? Because this coach had put it in his mind. Right? And it came to the point that they, they went, they picked up the boys from school, they took them to the to the the police station because they were going they were trying to figure out if this is abuse or what. And uh they, they really wanted to figure out if something else had happened, some physical thing had happened. And so they take them to the police station and the whole way the boys in the back seat are like trying to figure out how they can get away because the coach had told them if your parents ever try to get a microchip in you, they're going to kill you. You need to run away. You need to call defects, whatever defects is in their state, you know. You need to call defects, tell them they're abusing you, get out of that house, do, you lie, cheat, do whatever you have to do to get out of there. Well, this boy was like 14 when this all came out. Now he's 18, 19 years old. And he's a full-blown atheist. He wants nothing to do with religion. Why? He had been terrified for so long. He said he would go through school and he would see things that were supposed to be, you know, cryptic signs in the textbooks and all this stuff. And he said, I was terrified. And so I don't want to have anything to do with it. It's very serious. People don't want anything to do with religion because false ideas about God scare them so much that they don't want to have anything to do with them anymore. I think there are a lot of people who used to be members of the church that even though, you know, 
they're not being told that they're going to be killed by someone that's trying to put a microchip in them. They still, they're, they're, they go through that anxiety so much of, am I saved right now or am I lost? Am I saved or am I lost? That they just give up altogether. Because it's a whole lot easier just to sit at home, not do anything, be your own person instead of having to deal with that fear. That's not what verse 15 is talking about, right? He has given us the ability to not be fearful anymore. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. His Spirit, verse 16, bears witness with our spirit. How does our spirit bear witness that we are children of God? What is our spirit? How we think, how we act, how we talk, those, you know, how we live. Though, yeah, because at the judgment day, what's going to be opened? The book, the book of names, and the book of life, the book of deeds, right? Because our spirit, the book of deeds, is going to also bear witness with the spirit, the book, the Bible, and the book, the Lamb's book of life with the names that are written in it, right? So... Uh, it's just interesting to me that, I mean, that's the book of Revelation. Paul had nothing to do with the book of Revelation, right? He started some of the churches in the book of Revelation, but that's about it. But it, it just all ties together because it's it's like God wrote this or something because he did. All right, so um, let's drop down um, to verse 31 of chapter 8. Uh, just for time's sake, we're going to skip a little bit. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not, he who did not spare his own son, but gave up, gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If it is God who justifies, who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of God? Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As is written, for your sakes we are being killed all day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Chapter 8 is talking to Jew and Gentile and trying to give them some hope. That, okay, God gave you up, chapter 1, Gentiles, right? God despised your worship, Malachi says. Chapter 2 of Romans. God despised the Jewish world, the Jewish nation, because they had left the word of God. But now chapter 8, he's giving them hope. This is not a passage that says, once you're saved, you're always saved. It's a passage that says, if, if you are having those doubts, like the Jews and Gentiles are, are going to be having, if they've read this book entirely at this point, if you're having those doubts, don't worry, because... Your spirit is bearing witness with the Father's spirit that you're, you're a child of God. If you're a child of God, you don't have to worry about anybody hurting you or anybody, not physically, but spiritually. No one can take you out of the love of God. And we always add the, the, the little tagline, except yourself. But notice, Paul doesn't mention except yourself in chapter 8. Why? Is he saying you can never be lost? No. 
but it's understood by this point, right? We, we lessen the encouragement when we add that tagline. Nothing can separate the Christian from the love of God, period, at all. Nothing can separate the Christian from the love of God. If you want to get into a, a, a conversation about once saved, always saved, that's fine. The problem is, I already covered my bases. Why? Because I said nothing can separate the Christian from the love of God. We don't have to have the tagline. If you're a Christian, you're in the love of God, nothing can take you out of it. You can cease to be a Christian, but that's a different discussion. Um, I just think, that's just me, that sometimes we we kind of lessen the effect, right? Paul never says that in chapter 8. He says nothing can take you. In all these things, we're more than conquerors. And Paul actually made up a phrase for that. It's, it's, it's super conquerors. That's not, that's not a, a Greek word that they would have used. He made it up. Um, because it's not just, we don't just win the battle. We, we're super conquerors, right? And super conquerors in, in English even sounds a little strange, doesn't it? He made up a phrase because there's nothing that can, there's nothing so strong as the love of God. And so you have to make up a term for it. Alright, chapter 9. Now chapter 9, 10, 11 all speak to the Jews. And, and realistically speaking, we're going to go pretty fast through 9, 10, 11. Because, it, one, it's all speaking to the Jews. But two, it's, it's talking about the same subject. So we're not going to hit verse by verse in chapters 9, 10, 11. <sighs> Listen, Bible class, worship, fellowship meal. Worship. Move that thing. Teach Romans. I am dying. Alright, so um and men's meeting. So um so we're not gonna hit verse by verse, we're just gonna kinda go over it. Um somebody read chapter nine, verses one through three. Chapter nine, one through three. And it reads, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bear me witness. In the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continuous sorrow in my heart. For I should wish that myself were accused from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I was reading King James Version. Right. Verse, uh, verse 3. There are Israelites. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Notice this. This is kind of talking to the Jews here for a second. And he says, you don't forget, Gentiles, um, who the Jews really were. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You just remember, Gentiles. Don't don't start beating up the Jews now because they didn't follow God. Chapter one, I, I got on to you, and then I, chapter two, I got on to the Gentile to the Jews. Chapter nine, don't start thinking less of the Jews. Don't start saying, "Well, you know, you're a Jew, but I'm a Gentile, and God forgot about you to let me into the church." That's not true either. You remember where they came from? They had the law. They had the patriarchs. They had the adoption. 
that Christ came from them, right? So <laughs> it's it's just amazing. Paul Paul knows his audience very well, even though he's never met them, and he knows at some point they're going to start bickering back and forth, both sides. The Jews, the Jews are going to say, "Look how horrible you were." Read chapter one of, of Romans, and the Gentiles are going to say, "Yeah, but." God forgot about, you were the promised people, now you're not, now we're the promised people. No, you're not. You're all promised people, right? It's like, it's like dealing with children, right? Verse number six, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. The Old Testament wasn't the problem. Man was the problem. And not everyone who descended from Israel is part of the nation of Israel. Now why? I thought you were just born into the nation of Israel. He's talking about spiritually here, right? Not everybody who was born an Israelite followed the Israelite law. Now did some? Were there some Jews who followed the Israelite law, the Mosaic law perfectly? Yes. Paul said he did, right? And unless we're going to say Paul was a liar... Um, he he followed it perfectly. He didn't follow it sinlessly, but he followed it with the sacrifices perfectly. Is that and that's mainly what people don't get that you could follow the law because it was written down and it was a matter of following what was written. Oh yeah, down. it seems to me. Now this is just me, but it seems to me that it was much easier to follow the Old Testament than the New Testament. Yeah. The Old Testament is a checklist. You give me a checklist all day long. It's a pretty extensive checklist. I mean, this week we're reading the book of Leviticus. In the, it's a pretty expensive, extensive checklist. But, but you could. Right, you could. If not, God gave us a law that we couldn't follow, which doesn't make any sense. Right? Uh, especially when... He was going to hold them accountable. He was going to hold Jew and Gentile accountable to following the law that they couldn't follow in the first place. You see what I'm saying there? He set them up for failure. And that's just not, that's not true. Notice this though. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. The word doesn't change just because man refuses to listen to it. Could God have changed the Old Testament? Perhaps. But that wouldn't have done what he needed it to do. Right? Alright, so let's uh, drop down to verse uh, number 16 of chapter 9. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Our will has no bearing on the promise of God. And that's what chapter 9 is talking about. That, that the promise was to Abraham just... Dropping back up to verse number eight or verse number seven. Not all children of Abraham because they are the offspring, but through Isaac, your your offspring will be named. Um, He's talking about this promise to Abraham. So then it depends not on human will that the promise is fulfilled, but on God. Our will has no bearing on God's promise. In fact, if it had, the Christ wouldn't have come through Israel because the will of Israel had been broken, right? Um, what if God, verse 22, desiring to show his wrath 
and to make known his proper or his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he called Israelites, Jews, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Even even those who he called, the people who were following the Old Testament. Maybe maybe God knew what man was going to do, and he used what man was going to do for the betterment. Is that true? Yeah. Did God know we were going to sin? Yes. There's no doubt about it. He knew we were going to sin. Why did he do it? Why did he still create us? Because he was going to use our sin so that we could be with him for eternity. Right? We had to have a proving time. We're still in that proving time. Um, drop down to verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not perceive... or Sorry. I'm so tired I can't even read. Mm-hmm. That, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. Why did the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain it? A righteousness that is based by faith. Faith in the Old Testament, fall in the Old Testament. But they didn't pursue it Meaning, the nation of the the nation, sorry, the people of the Gentiles, as a whole, did not pursue righteousness, right? But some Gentiles did, because they, yeah, they they proselyted, right? Because they followed it by faith. Why then did the Jews not receive the same righteousness? Why did they not reach the righteousness? Because they weren't following it by faith; they were following it as based on works. They thought that if we check the boxes, we're good. And it's not just about checking the boxes. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. God knew that they were going to give in to that. He knew that they were going to, to work works of righteousness and try to earn it through their, through their Old Testament. But he still needed the Old Testament to be there. Brothers, my heart des- heart's desire and prayer to God is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, the Jews. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about righteousness that is based on the law, that that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That's Leviticus 18, verse 5, by the way, if you want to take a note of that. Leviticus 18, 5. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down. That's Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 and 13. Verse 7, Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth. (sighs) The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Will you be saved? Yes. 
All you have to do is believe and confess, and you will be saved. However, if you're doing it to check a box, you will not be saved. Right? I think, and, and, and hear me out on this, I teach the kids the plan of salvation, right? Y'all have all been in there when I'm teaching them the plan of salvation. However, it's, every time we go to camp every summer, we see kids who know the, know the plan of salvation, and they just go through it. Well, yeah, I believe, uh, I'm repenting right now, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Can I be baptized? They, they do it just like a Jew would have done the Old Testament, right? Now, Romans says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is made, or is saved. That is true. All you have to do is believe and confess. However, belief, faith, is not just an, a mental ascension. It's not just an acknowledgement that something is true. Isn't that what he's been saying the whole time in Romans? Right? That faith is not just, okay, God's real. You're saved by faith, right? What is the faith of the New Testament? Following the new law, right? If you don't have faith, you can't please him. Hebrews eleven six. Faith is the entire New Testament. All you have to do is have faith and confess Christ and you'll be saved. But faith is an active, willing faith. And he's already said in this book that we're baptized for the remission of our sins. He doesn't have to say that again, right? Somebody goes to Romans 10 and said, all you have to do is believe. That's true. Here's the problem. Sit down and read Romans 1 through 10 now, chapters 1 through 10, because don't just take this verse out of context. Read what he's already told them. If he's already told them that they have to be baptized to be freed from slavery. And he said that the New Testament is faith, is belief. And if you believe the New Testament, you'll work it, you'll live it out in your lives. Not work it, but live it out in your lives. Don't just take this as a proof text that all you have to do is believe. Because it's exactly what he says. And I love, I love preaching sermons in new places. And I say in the invitation... All you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ. And they go, who did we invite to speak here? And I say, but you need to read the book of Romans to know what belief is. Remember what I said that I strongly believe that if you have a person who is interested in, in the church and you want to know what they need to know to be, become a Christian, hand them the book of Romans. That's all they need to know to become a Christian. Now that's pretty tough, <laughs> as we've seen over the last three weeks. But all they need to know is what is in the book of Romans. Have faith. What is faith? It's the New Testament. What does that look like? It means sacrificing yourself on the altar of everything else so that you can be a Christian. Whatever it takes. And you are saved from your, from your slavery through baptism. Chapter 6. Alright, so for time's sake and for my sleepiness sake, we're going to uh, skip forward a little bit. Let's talk to you about chapter 11. So chapter 11, he, he talks about, um, he, he's still talking about the Jews, still talking about how their promise 
You were given the promise, Jews. He's kind of patting them on the back. You were given the promise. You are God's chosen people. However, the Gentiles are now too. And you have to accept them. It's kind of the, it's kind of the father to his son when he gets a step, step brother, you know. Hey, hey, listen, you're still my son too, but they are too, you know. Or the, the father who's got a, a 10 year old boy and he's, and he's fixing to have another baby, right? And the 10 year old's like, well, you're forgetting about me. No, listen, I love you just like I love him, but he's new and he's part of this too. And we're all one big, fa- it's, it's kind of a pep talk. Um, it's just a super in-depth theological pep talk. Um, so let's look down at verse number 11 of chapter 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's, he's talking about the Jews here. Through the trespass of the Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Not, not in order to make Israel jealous, but that's the result that Israel was made jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their inclusion mean? And their in full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm, as, then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. He's talking about what what transgression of the Jews caused the Gentiles to hear the gospel. What transgression of the Jews caused more Gentiles to hear the gospel? What happened in Paul's ministry, right? He's talking about his ministry. What happened? He keeps going to the synagogue. They don't listen. So what does he say? All right, your blood be on your hands. I'm going to the Gentiles, right? He's, he said, he told, he showed his cards here. I'm talking about my ministry. I'm magnifying my ministry so that Jews get jealous. Because of their sin, you heard the gospel. Jews, if you're really mad about the Gentiles being accepted into the church, it's your own fault. If you'd accepted what I was saying, I would have never had to go to the Gentiles to tell them about it. Is that true? Would, if, if the Jews that heard Paul had accepted the truth, would Gentiles never be accepted into the church? No. But he's being super sarcastic to make them jealous so that they'll listen to what he's saying, right? Paul knows his audience. <laughs> he knows. And, and, and this is the beauty of the Bible, that, that he is, he's doing this in order to make them jealous. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what then will their full acceptance mean but life from the dead? Gentiles, yes, you were grafted in. However, the, Gen- the Jews were always here to begin with. And you need to remember that. And even though I left, and maybe some Jew- Gentile is going to go up to a Jew next Sunday and say, hey, uh, yeah, you might have been the promised people of the Old Testament. You, you remember the great Paul, who we've never met yet, because he hasn't come to Rome yet, right? But we hear rumors about this man named Paul, who's turning the world upside down for the gospel. Just remember where he's going when he gets to a town. He's not going to the synagogue anymore. He's going to the Gentiles. 
And Paul says, yeah, you know why I'm going to the Gentiles? Because I'm making them jealous so that they'll obey the gospel. They're, they're included too, right? Um, see, this is, this is not the theological section of the book of Romans, right. right? This is the encouragement. This is the, hey, you know, don't get, don't let your ego get, uh, out of place, right? Um, and then he starts talking about this grafted in of an olive branch that, that Gentiles were grafted into the branch. And I don't know how this works. There's some way that that a that an old branch can be grafted into an olive tree, and something about the genetics of an olive tree that you can take a branch from one and put it somehow with another one, and it'll become part of the other one. Um, and so he's using that as an illustration. Sadly, in in Arab, we didn't have a lot of olive trees, so I don't know how that works. Although, if you want to know how to grow corn, I can probably tell you how to do that. All right, so. He uses this illustration, verse number 24. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own tree? Right? You're the, you're the wild olive tree, Gentiles, and you've been grafted into the tree of God, but the Jews were the tree of God before you got here. It's kind of putting everybody in their place. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of the myst- this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The Jews got hard. They didn't want to hear Paul. Paul went, preached to the Gentiles. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now as regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God does not change the system so that someone can be saved. The system is irrevocable. The calling of God is irrevocable. Right? Just because the, the Jews did what they did and, and sinned in the way they did and worked after their own righteousness. The system of God, the calling of God, does not change. Somebody says, well, Lee, when did you receive your calling? Uh, about 2,000 years ago when Jesus said, go in all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Right? Yeah. When, when, did you receive your, when did you receive your calling to be a minister? I received my calling to be a minister when, when Christians were told to preach the gospel in whatever talent they had. Right? And I have the talent of standing up in front of people and blabbing for a few minutes. Right? And so I received my call then. The, the calling of God is the system. Okay, it's not an individual call. It's the system. God creates the system and says, here, if you want in, here's how to get in. Right? The calling of God is irrevocable. Um, down to verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Have you ever given God a loan? 
because he, he doesn't have any money. Yeah, he doesn't have any money, so he asks for you for a loan. For by him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God is in control. He ends chapter 11 saying, God is in control. If you have questions about the promise, remember God is in control. If you have questions about why God, cre- why God created the church so that Gentiles could come in, remember he's in control. If you have questions why the Jews, even though they had it right in front of them and they didn't obey it, and now they're still accepted, why is that God? God is in control. You don't have the right, you, you, you can't loan him any money. You can't tell him anything he doesn't know, right? Verse number 34, who has known the mind of the Lord, who's been his counselor? Has God ever asked you your opinion? No. And even though you don't understand, even though you're maybe a little bit upset, just remember that you can't give God your opinion. You can't give him any advice. You can't loan him money. God is in control. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's chapter 11. So we went through chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. No, we went fast. Um, we've been going now for just, just over an hour. But, um, you know, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are, are, if you read through them with that mindset, you will, you will quickly understand it. It's not super in-depth. Now, chapter 12, through the rest of the book, is application-based. And so that's what we're going to do next week. Um, now, given that next week, we're going over five chapters. We are not going to be able to go over each individual one. We're going to look at how the gospel, how the New Testament, how faith and justification changes our relationships. It changes our relationships to God, chapter 12, to uh, each other, chapter uh, 14, to the civil government, chapter 13, um, and so forth. So, so we'll look at that next week and, and kind of um, we'll skip around a lot and, and kind of go semi um, verse by verse. But any questions about 8 through 11? Yeah, you're doing a great job. All right. Thank you all very much. So let's go ahead and uh, let's have a prayer.